There's no question about it that losing hope causes people to make rash and often harmful decisions, especially if they're angry or sad or grieved. And it would be unpastoral, almost unthinkable for me to not begin my message about hope this week and address what has been the most public display of hopelessness in our country this past week, which is the riots and the civil unrest associated with um, a decision that many in our country considered unjust. Now, I'm not here to make a political statement. I'm just here to, to make a rather simple observation, which is people will do all sorts of things, some of them right, some of them wrong, in a state where they feel like they've lost hope. They feel like nobody's listening to them. Uh, They'll do something that they think is crazy. If you think that something you want to work out the way you want it to work out doesn't work out that way, you and I are all guilty of in our hopelessness doing things. I've seen this outside of the realm of social unrest. I've seen this in the many, many times that I have done pre-marriage counseling. Sometimes I'll have someone come to me, and this is no... uh, this is no commentary, more than an observation, that it's oftentimes a single woman who's a Christian, and she will come and she will say, you know, I, I want to get married, will you do the wedding? And I'll say, well, let me meet with you and your husband, or your, and your betrothed, or the one you're talking, you're going to marry, and, and I'll discover in that conversation that the man that she has determined to marry doesn't really know Jesus, or, or has a, a minimal experience of a relationship with God and she had a really enthusiastic uh, that Jesus and her relationship with Jesus was central to her life but at a certain point this young woman and this has happened on numerous occasions began to panic thought I'm going to spend the rest of my life alone they she begins to lose hope that God will provide somebody and so the standards begin to fall I won't look for somebody that I'm actually in love with. I won't look for somebody that loves Jesus. I won't look for somebody that my friends and family all collectively seem to think is a good match for me. I'm just frightened. This happens, this sense of hopelessness that leads to rash and often bad decision-making happens for parents whose uh, children have wandered from Christ. Children... Uh, who they think are not ever going to return to the faith. They fear this, and oftentimes in their hopelessness will begin to apply pressure or manipulatives. They, they will, in their fear, begin to try to control the behavior of their children instead of being able to release and be able to say, Lord, I'm going to let you be the Holy Spirit in this. I'm going to continue to trust you, even though I'm hopeless even though I'm starting to feel like I don't have a sense that things are going to work out for your glory, for my good. We begin our Advent season by talking about hope. And we talk about hope as it comes to us through the incarnation. Now, if you're not a church person by uh, trade or by tradition, then let me explain the term incarnation. It simply means the arrival of God, the incarnation, the, the arrival of Jesus in the body of a human. Now, this is a dual-natured Savior who was and is still both fully God and fully human. We're talking about God coming and being made flesh, that when we speak of 
who God is, we don't think of him uh, as just the Father invisible, but for believers in Jesus, we look and see the attributes and character of God and the humanity of Christ. The dual nature of Christ is, is critical to the Christian faith for two really big purposes. One is that uh, he, because he is God, is able to save us, as the scriptures say, to the uttermost. He is capable because he's God, because he's holy, because he's powerful. He is capable, he is worthy to save us from our sins. He actually could be sacrificed and his sins pay for ours. I mean, his life pay for our sins. He's holy enough for that to happen. But the fully human component of our Savior, who remains fully human as he intercedes for us at the throne of God, the fully human component of Jesus is critical to our understanding too because it means that Jesus is fully connected to the pain and struggle that we experience in this broken world. In his arrival, as celebrated at Christmas and in Scripture, we have now renewed hope. And what is hope? Let's be very clear about that too. We're talking about the noun as opposed to the verb. The verb is, Christmas is coming, I hope I get my favorite fill-in-the-blank. Hope, the noun is, Christmas is coming, and I'm really thrilled that I'm getting two weeks off. I have hope. See, the difference is, one is you're wishing and hope, you know, thinking, and I'm hoping I get what I want. The other is, I'm certain this is going to happen, and it's buoying my spirits, I'm realizing that I'm going to get some time off. I realize that I'm going to get to walk away from the office for a bit. I realize that I'm going to get time renewed with family that I haven't seen for a while. This is hope. So today what we want to do is look at the birth narrative that, well, the first of four narratives of the early life of Christ is told in the Gospels and look at how hope has actually come to us. We have the luxury today of not only seeing the broader picture of hope given to us in Christ, but in the actual story, you can see where hope was restored to both Mary and Joseph in some critical ways that I think have practical applications for you and I in everyday life. So let's take a look. How does hope come to us, particularly as we look at Matthew chapter 1? And this is the first of two uh, hope narrative hope advent thoughts I have for you. And the first point or the first hope that we have coming to us in Christmas is we now know that pain really does have a divine purpose. Pain really does have a divine purpose. Life is difficult. Things will challenge you and I right to the edge of sometimes our ability to to control our emotions or to sense that there's value in this But what we see from the Christmas narrative, what we see from the birth of Christ, from the incarnation of Christ, is we now do not have to look at the difficulties in our lives hopelessly thinking that they're pointless and they're just painful for no good reason. Let me read the passage. Verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There are a couple of things in this text that are worth pointing out. First of all, the the angel's declaration of Joseph, son of David, is significant, and it's significant that Matthew, the gospel writer, would have mentioned this. It's significant because it denotes that both Jesus' mother and father were descendants of King David. Now, this would have been important to Matthew's primary gospel audience. I have to say this because we believe Scripture was written by human beings with all of their creative, uh, uh, all of their excited, and, and really all of their biases. They say, I'm going to write a gospel, and I'm going to make it so that the people who are reading this get the importance and the significance of what's being said. So we know from history, from scholarship, that the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the first four historical books of the New Testament, was written first. We then know that both with copies of Mark, Matthew and Luke, both expounded on the gospel message so that people, different groups of people, would see how in totality Jesus had come to be the Messiah. Luke's gospel was tailored linguistically and stylistically and in many ways culturally so that people who were Gentiles would have some of their most significant questions answered. And the same would be true of Matthew, a gospel that was written by a Jew for a Jewish audience. And and in this gospel, in this message to people, Matthew would have wanted them to know that Jesus was going to be in the line of David and that Joseph, his father, in a patriarchal culture, it would have been important for Jews in particular to know that Joseph was part of David's lineage. Now, this is why the genealogy in Matthew is different than the one in Luke, if you've ever wondered. It's because Luke's audience, primarily Gentiles, people who tend to think in these logical categories comparatively, were gonna go, what does it matter if he's born of a virgin who his dad was? I mean, that's, that makes good sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if the Holy Spirit's the father then who cares where Joseph comes from? Is, if Jesus is going to be one of, in the line of David, then we want to know, is his mom hooked up to David? And sure enough, in Luke's genealogy, you see the same thing proclaimed, that Mary, through all of the relatives, would trace her lineage all the way back to King David as well. This was to fulfill the prophecies made about Jesus. And what we see in this is that God is sovereign over circumstances. We see this in both the genealogy of Jesus and in the lives of his parents, that God knows what he's doing. God chooses people. The the lineage is something I'll talk about again in a couple of weeks, but you see in the lineage people who are not Jews. There are Gentiles in the lineage of Jesus. There's a prostitute in the lineage of Jesus. Broken people are a part of this master plan of God. He knows what he's doing. When we say he's sovereign, we mean he's the king. He's literally in charge. He's the all-powerful God of creation. He chose Mary and Joseph to be Jesus's parents. He did not come to Mary and say, would you like in a choice of your own free will to decide to be the mother of the Messiah? That was a decision he made. He did not consult with her. She considered it a privilege to be part of the lineage of, of the Messiah and to be, a, to be a part of the plan of God. As all-powerful king of the universe, God gets what he wants 
And most importantly, here's our comfort, is that when God brings about something in our lives that maybe throws us for a loop because it's what he would want, we should take comfort that he gives purpose to what he wants, that there's an ultimate end in this. Now you look at Joseph and Mary's lives. Where practically would they have needed hope? Where would they have felt at times hopeless? Well, we'll start with Mary, who's a teenager, and in a very religious culture, she finds out she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, imagine communicating you were pregnant to your relatives if you were a teenager, how difficult that would be outside of marriage if you were in a really religious culture. But then imagine trying to communicate to everybody that God got you pregnant. I mean, this would cause me to think, how can I live under this burden? How can I actually function in a world? This is an unexpected difficulty that is clearly she communi- was communicated to her. This is something that God wills. So she's got suffering in her life that is a part of God's plan for her life, including the mockery of others, and she's got to endure this. Joseph is engaged to his dream girl. He's thinking he's got the hottie he wanted. She's beautiful. I love her. And in in the case of Joseph, he loves her so much. You can tell he loves her because he didn't want to submit her to public disgrace. This was not an arranged marriage per se where he didn't care who he was married to. He really loved Mary. And he didn't take her word for it. I mean, that's crazy. Who got you pregnant? So he is faced with this real struggle. He is faced with this real difficulty. And God tells him, you know what? I'm in charge of all this. He gives him hope to be able to stand there and say, in spite of everybody telling him, get out of this relationship, dude. You, you married, the, you picked the wrong girl. You've got the right to get out of this thing. Move on. Everybody telling him, you, you must be nuts to marry somebody who's already cheated on you. He's got to be able to say, I have confidence that God's in this. And for those closest to him, he could tell them the story. God came to me, told me this, and hoped that they wouldn't think he was over, you know, the edge. Really? God told you that he got Mary pregnant. Is this where we're going with this? Is this the story you're going to tell us? This is the kind of pressure. I mean, he's doing the right thing, even though others might find him foolish. And then one area is that is the, is Mary and Joseph, both Israelites, had for years heard themselves about the Messiah, this Messiah of Israel who is going to come. And so as part of their community, they're thinking, oh my goodness, This thing we've longed for, this king of Israel, the the son of David is coming. And not only is he coming, but he's going to be born into our family. See, these are areas where they needed hope. And this hope didn't disappoint them. In spite of the fact that they were dealing with circumstances that were really painful, really challenging, The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, and in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, he said this to these believers, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, 
perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. See, we have hope that life's circumstances, the challenges we face, the disappointments that come seemingly out of nowhere, curveballs that you didn't think were gonna come, you gotta think to yourself, is God really in charge of this? And the good news of the incarnation, the good news of the birth of Christ is that you and I can rest assured that the pain we experience in life really does have a divine purpose. The most urgent part of this Romans 5 passage is the first verse and that, that declares we've been made right with God through Jesus. We now have peace with God through faith alone in what Jesus has done. Now, Jesus' name in, in Hebrew is, is Yeshua, which is Joshua. The name means to bring God's salvation. And it says in Matthew 1.21, when the angel told them, you're going to name him Jesus, which would be Joshua, because he's going to save the people from their sins. Israel's Messiah. And it's critical for us to understand this. The plan of God to save us involved God himself suffering. The purpose of God to redeem us included suffering. God was sovereign over all that too. Pain really does have a divine purpose. If Israel's Messiah suffered as part of God's plan, this should provide an ultimate example for all of us that when the going gets tough, God knows what he's doing. And in the end, there is wonderful purpose. And this reality is what enables us to have hope because God loved us enough to pour out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. I know what I'm getting for Christmas because I bought it. <laughs> I'm getting a new TV for my bedroom. And you may say to yourself, why does somebody need a new TV in their bedroom? Well, two reasons. I need a TV in my bedroom because I have college students living at home and they have friends over and I get kicked out of the family room all the time. Or they're watching something that I'm like, this is the dumbest show I've ever seen in my life. I have to retreat to some place of solace and watch the History Channel or something that old people watch. <laughs> but the, the other thing is, is that my TV has been on the fritz for like the longest time. It's, it's kind of an older generation, like it's not really a flat screen because it's so thick. Flat is a relative term. But I have to actually walk up to it every few minutes and whack it on the top just to get it to kind of get back to the regular picture. And you say, well, Chuck, you, you know you're getting a new TV for Christmas. Doesn't that ruin the surprise for you? <laughs> Not really. I was going to have to buy something for myself anyway. What it does is gives me hope. It means that for the next 25 days, I can endure having to get out of bed and whack the TV. This isn't going to go on forever. I can live knowing that in 25 days, I'm going to have exactly what I need. This will make my, my time in the room for the next 25 days much more enjoyable. See, this is the nature of hope for you and me. It isn't, I'm hoping I'm going to get this TV. It's, I know I'm going to get this TV, and I can endure the purposes of God over the next suffering 25 days of football interrupted every five minutes by me walking up to my television and whacking it on the top. Friends, life is like this. It's just difficult. There's no way to pretend that. I don't have a Joel Osteen message for you today that if you'll just apply the biblical principles, you'll never suffer. That's just a lie. 
That's, I don't mean to be harsh, but it, it's just a lie. It's not how anybody lives. That's not reality. If, if that was the gospel message, then why did all of the apostles die and suffer and be persecuted? Why were they martyred for the faith? They, they weren't living large. Their hope was not in their things. Their hope was that they knew one day all of the things they were suffering were going to have a divine purpose that would be for their enjoyment for all of eternity and certainly for the glory of God. Pain really does have a divine purpose. Here's the second piece of hope for you here on Christmas or on the advent of Christmas. Prophecy really is a divine promise. When you read Old Testament prophecies fulfilled, when you read New Testament prophecies, and we think that Matthew through Revelation is prophetic word of God. We refer to it as apostolic truth. We treat it in the same categories as the major prophets and the minor prophets of the Old Testament, 17 of them. We treat the New Testament authors with the same sense of of divine inspiration given to them. Of course, creative impulses and human impulses were used, and they maybe used the wrong word every now and again or put the comma in the wrong place. We're talking about the Lord inspiring them to bring what he wanted to reveal to us about the lives we live and about the world we live in. And what's contained in these prophecies, particularly the ones that are related to Jesus, are grand assurances and promises that you and I need to cling to, as did Joseph. Let me read the passage again, verses 22 through 25. All this took place, according to Matthew 1, 22, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave gave him the name Jesus. Uh, Ten Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah were fulfilled in these early chapters of the Gospels. In Genesis 3.15 it says Jesus was to be born of a, it says the Messiah was to be born of a woman. In Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 7:14, that the Messiah would be born a virgin. In Genesis 12:3, from Abraham's line. In Genesis 17:19, the Messiah would be a descendant of Isaac. In Numbers 24, a descendant of Jacob. In Genesis 49, that the Messiah would come from the Israel tribe of Judah. That he'd be an heir to King David, according to 2 Samuel 7. In Isaiah 7, he'd be called Emmanuel. Hosea 11, 1 even talks about the season that Jesus would spend in his infancy in Egypt. And this is just a cross section. You can go online. They have websites completely dedicated to prophecies fulfilled by Jesus from the Old Testament. I say it because it's exciting to find out that these Old Testament prophecies were promises to Israel and God answered those promises. They clung to them when times were tough as they had been for Jews in what we call the intertestamental time. This is the time between the final book of the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus on the scene. In those difficult times, they clung to the promise of a Messiah to come. Joseph's obedience is something that we get to learn from 
because it is, in effect, someone who hears the prophecy of God through an angel and clings to it obediently and in the end discovers that he was glad he did. This is not necessarily always easy for us. We hear the prophecies of God. We hear the promises of God. We hear the word of God as it's given to us and revealed to us in the scriptures. And sometimes that tells us to do something difficult. It challenges us to do something that we think is counterintuitive. It may even call us to say, we think we're going a little, people are going to think we're a little crazy. Joseph's obedience was a demonstration of our need to trust the commands of the Lord and appropriate the peace that he offers from the promises he's made. We start with the look at Joseph's declaration, or the scripture's declaration that when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. It is important in verse 25 to recognize that for his sake, for the integrity of his life, He had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And that means that even though he could have, after he had officially married her, and even though she was pregnant, he could have made love to her. He could have had sex with her. He didn't because he wanted to make sure that there was never a doubt in his mind that he was not the dad. See, and this is a guy who's saying, I'm looking at a lifetime of having to remember that my son was born of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to confuse that at all. I don't, for a minute, want to ever doubt for a second that this thing is of God. And you know, if he did have union with her sometime in the early part of her pregnancy, he might later go, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it was just a crazy moment. Maybe it was bad cow I ate or uh, maybe it was something that caused me to think that this wasn't from the Holy Spirit, an hallucination of some sort. No, he was obedient to God He followed the directive that was given to him. It is the promise that God's word is trustworthy in the end that gives us hope while we suffer in the short term. Places where you and I would need to appropriate hope in our lives are not all that dissimilar to what Mary and Joseph had to experience. You and I have unexpected difficulty that we realize is part of God's plan. Nothing you did. You didn't create this problem. You got, you got let go from a job because your company's downsizing. You had the hope to, to buy a house, and at the last second, the, the seller decided to, that they wanted to go a different direction. You know, something that you thought was going to go a certain way just didn't go a certain way, and it causes you anxiety and pain. And there are other things, too. There are other situations where you and I experience unexpected difficulty and it just is part of this life. We oftentimes are called to do the right thing even though others might find us foolish. People I know that are experiencing this in our culture in particular, why not spend two or three years living together on the front side of getting married so that we can figure out whether or not we really like each other before we actually take the plunge? And then they talk to people and they go, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to do that. And people go, that's just crazy. Why, why would you waste that kind of money? Why would you make your life miserable? Why would you actually add that kind of burden to your life? 
because I want to obey the scriptures and not have sex before I'm married, because I want to obey the scriptures and live a life that would honor Christ and be above reproach. But the people around you might look at you like, you're insane. You don't have sex? What's wrong with you? How are you going to know if you're any good at it? That's the kind of commentary I've actually heard single people in, in L.A. in particular. It's like, oh, that doesn't, who cares if you're any good at it? You're, you're marrying somebody. You're, you're going to spend the rest of your life with somebody. You're going to marry them and stay with them whether they're any good at it or not. It's got nothing to do with it. That's not the only thing. There are other places in the world where Christians are going to be called to say, listen, got to stand with Jesus on this particular issue, this social issue. This one here, I got to stand with the Lord. He's been very clear about this. Life is important. So we're not going to do anything that would take the life of another person. This may make you seem sort of loony and crazy. You need to know, as did Joseph, that there is a purpose to you doing the right thing, even though others may think you are foolish. Finally, for a lot of people, the biggest hurdle we face is the recognition that we need a Savior, that we need somebody to rescue us. This past week, I had some challenging discussions online with some people from the South. And again, I'm from the South for the last two decades, and this whole racial injustice thing has been very difficult for a lot of people to process, particularly if you're a Southern gun owner and white. You know, there's something about this whole process that is just disconcerting. But I have to say something because it's important for you to hear me say it, and that is understanding why people do things does not justify their doing them. As a matter of fact, that's the only way you and I ever get to come closer to God. If a middle schooler bullies other middle schoolers, meeting with that child and saying, you know, did your dad hit you? Oh, I'm really sorry. That doesn't justify his hitting other little kids. It explains it and actually creates an entry point where you can say, Let's work on healing this thing in your heart that's so wounded and hurt. We don't have to demand that everybody agree with us. What we have to do is be able to express the compassion of Christ and say, I understand, you're obviously hurting. How can I help? How can I help heal the wound in your heart? One of the discussions I had this past week online was with a young man from Texas. <laughs> yeah, Texas guys had a tough week this week. At least their conservative ones did. He took exception with something I had said. And uh, one of the things he said as I talked to him about the concept that we are all very fortunate to be where we are, that we all live life based on the grace extended by God through other people, that nobody picks themselves up by their own bootstraps all by their lonesome. All the way through life, we're given aid and help, and to not acknowledge that is just foolishness. We're born into families we didn't choose to be born into. We were given parents that we didn't choose to be given. We are given boosts along the way by friends and family. We just forget these opportunities. I can't tell you how many really rich guys I've met who forgot how they got their first break. How many celebrities there are in Hollywood that think they earned their way to the top and don't realize that there are people that are more talented than them that are sitting around doing nothing. See, we, we all forget that we've been fortunate 
and that God has been gracious to us. His comment to me, this man I was in, uh, debating graciously, he, it, it was, it, it's an insult to people who pick themselves up by their own and to, to, to say that others helped them. And it probably is. If you delusionally think you got where you got in life without anybody else's help, I'm sure if there's great pride you've taken in that, that for someone to come along and assert that you wouldn't have done it without help from others, it's probably going to damage your ego in some way. This is the great sin of mankind. This is certainly the great sin of our culture, which is, I don't need forgiveness. I'm fine just the way I am. I don't need your advice. Who are you? I don't need you to tell me how to live. Who are you? I'm my own person. I'm my own rule maker. I did this by myself. Me, me, and more of me. See, and and if that's the case, recognizing your need for a Savior and and humbly receiving Him is not going to be an easy thing to do. See, and that's not just true for ultimate salvation. It's true for those situations in life where we face difficulties, we have to be able to say, I can't face this alone. I need God. One of the grand purposes of suffering in our lives is to get us to turn to him and stop relying on ourselves. Paul wrote as well to the Romans in chapter 15 of uh, Romans, and he said, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. You know, I could spend a day on verse 7 of Romans chapter 15. You know how critical it is for you and I to rest and be able to know that Christ has accepted us? We're not going to be able to accept other people if we don't get the basic reality of the gospel, that God has accepted you because of Christ. And by virtue of depending on Jesus alone for that and giving him the credit for why God has accepted you, That gives him the glory. He's the one that gets the credit. I will continue. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you people. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, and one who will arise over the nations, the Gentiles, will hope in him. All people, Jew, Gentile, are given grand hope and a grand promise that in Christ they can be secure and know that they are safe, that they need not fear judgment, which is why the the apostle could give this benediction in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm a professor at a small Christian college up the hill. I teach communications, and there are two weeks left in the semester. Two weeks and then a final exam. Now, I sent out a, an email through the, the apparatus that the school gives us and, and it gave a complete update of their grades. I, throughout the semester, everything's computerized, and they can go online at any time, see what their grades are for any quizzes, any exams, and any, in our case, speeches too. So a lot of them know, just by doing the simple math, with two quizzes left, 
uh, one final and one speech, they know they could flunk all of those things and still get a B or a C in the class. I mean, they're doing so well that the, the end of the semester doesn't terrify them. They are not like, oh, I'm racked with you know, fear. Got other students, though, who went online over Thanksgiving break, checked their updated speech com 101 grades and went, the next two weeks are going to be a bear. I am going to have to scrap, and I am full of anxiety because I don't know what my future holds. I may flunk. I got a couple of athletes who may lose their scholarships because their grades are so bad. The next two weeks, nothing but anxiety, knots in their stomach, fear. This is really how it is for a lot of people with regards to their soul. The, the time between now and judgment day, whether it be the day they pass away or the day Jesus returns, is just filled with knots in their stomach. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. Urgh! I'm not going to be able to get the grades I need to make that happen. Urgh! Nervousness, fear. That's not hope. That's hoping. I hope I pass the test. I hope I make the grade. Hope is what the ones in my class have that have a perfect grade already or a darn near perfect one. They know that no matter what happens, they're going to be fine. I got one baseball player who's got an A+. He knows his scholarship is safe because he's got the grades. The beautiful truth of the gospel is that Jesus has already accomplished everything you could conceivably accomplish. He has perfectly submitted to the will of God. He has perfectly fulfilled the law in every way. He has accomplished salvation for you if you're his child. You need not fear in the slightest. The ultimate hope is that regardless of how you do in obedience for the rest of your life, Jesus has secured your salvation. Now that should make you want to love him, but it most certainly should give your soul relief. You should be able to enjoy even the sufferings and difficulties and challenges because you know ultimately you're safe. Ultimately you know you have hope. And this is what we're given in the incarnation of Jesus, our Savior. Let us pray. Father, for the gift of Christmas, we thank you. We thank you for the kindness that you've extended to us in more ways than we can conceivably count. And I would pray that this Christmas season would create within us a revived spirit that not only is enthusiastic about what you have done in the gospel, but really senses and feels a desire to please you and love you and trust you and, and obey you as, as, as you gave hope to Joseph and it encouraged him to obey you. I would pray that you would renew us in our appreciation for all that we have in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.